Hello and welcome to We Are The University, a podcast about the people who make Cambridge University unique. I'm your host, Nick Safel. In today's episode, we talk to Anna-Laura van Hamelen, a neuroscientist who dreamt of becoming a helicopter pilot before she became fascinated by the brain. We talk about mental health and how her research is trying to understand what puts young people at risk of suicide. For the five things that motivate you. Yeah. Did you do, did you do your homework? Yeah, I did. Okay. <laughs> You're was it difficult? No, 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 no. It was, was it difficult? Very difficult. Was it? Okay. It kind of forces you to think about your career in a meta way. Yeah. Which I have apparently never really done. Okay. Um, so I went about thinking, like, why do I do what I do? And then I, I could remember why I wanted to do what I do. Yeah. Um, which is on my 19th birthday, my dad gave me this book by Oliver Sacks, um, uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. Okay. I read it and absolutely loved it. So I decided I wanted to study the brain and um, I wanted to just know more. And But at that time, I just wanted to understand the brain, but I had no yeah. idea what the brain actually meant or what, it, what, what that would uh, entail, really. Um, and at the same time, I was, I was actually already doing, uh, a, um, undergraduate degree in physical education. Yes. Physical education? Yes. I did an Is undergraduate degree P- in physical PE. Yeah. I did sports science as well. High five. Yeah. Awesome. It was because uh, of the biology, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you I, about my well, story. But exactly. That's, yeah. that's, so I went, I went to do PE because I, um, once, <laughs> so this is really weird. I want to become a helicopter pilot. How do you get from a and then, to a helicopter pilot? And then my eyes, all of a sudden when I was 16, my eyes went really, really bad. Okay. So my eyesight was really poor and um, I, I had to kind of reshape my ideas. But I was really young um, and I had to um, think about future career perspectives. Yep. And at that time, I just thought, well, either the police or... Uh, something really active, something really cool. So yeah. I kind of envisioned myself as a helicopter pilot. Uh, and then when I couldn't do that, I I, I can't even remember why, but I just decided to apply for this um, for P, to, for the for the for the the college where you can okay. do a degree in PE. And yeah. in the Netherlands, that's very difficult. You have to do an entrance exam, and only one in five are selected. And I'm very ambitious. Right. So I kind of saw that as a challenge. And so when I was 19, my dad gave me that book. And mm-hmm. I had already done lots of biology. And I had started to become really interested in younger children with learning disabilities okay. and with disabilities in general. And I was doing an internship at a special needs school. And I saw all these really interesting cases uh, of children with genetic disorders, children with ADHD, autism. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that was extremely interesting. Uh, to, to, and I, I really wanted to better understand what, what was going on with these children and how the biology facilitated that kind of behavior, kind of phenotype, as you will. So then I just decided, oh, I'm just going to study psychology uh, and I'm going to focus on neuropsychology. So was it the sort of the brain that interested you or the makeup of it? Or was it the sort of emotional side that interested you? It wasn't necessarily the brain. It was more the, the, the biology. Okay. And of course, the brain orchestrates your, your, your biology, really. It's yeah. 
very important aspect of your biology. Um, but it's more, I think, how the brain then facilitates the behavior. So what went wrong? What is the norm? How, how does a brain work? And yeah. uh, what happens if, if part of that go awry? Um, that I wanted to learn about. And I was very young. I was 20 when I finished my degree. Um, so I, I, I just thought, oh, I'll just um, go to university now and study psychology. So it wasn't really a well-thought-out plan or okay. something that I always wanted to do when I was little. It just kind of came about because I really liked learning about those aspects. When I did my PE degree, I really liked doing psychology. Yeah. I was really good at it. I get really high marks for it. So I thought, well, I'm good at it. Let's let's continue that track, really. And let's kind of continue that way. So I've just always stuck with what I'm good at <laughs> and what That's I like. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Right? If it ties in with what you like and what you're good at, then... I, th I think it's, um, it's when you like something um, and you work hard you will become good at it so 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 that's what i uh, could think of when when you gave me that list that that <laughs> come up with list. five five yeah five things well that's a list yeah it is <laughs> first one pleasure and i've already kind of said this yeah. i just really like what i do and and therefore it's easier for me to do it and um even when it gets hard it's it's easier when it when you like um, uh, the thing you're doing, I take immense gratification in um, getting my code to run. <laughs> so if, if I, I'm working on, on a script and it doesn't run, it's very frustrating. But then the feeling when it does run is just absolutely <laughs> amazing. Like, it works, I made it! <laughs> you want to you wanna high-five everyone around you. And that, that feeling, that's yeah. like intense pleasure and, and it's very gratifying. Um, so that's one aspect of what I like about it. I also yeah. like um, I like talking about it. I like. I was, oh no no, Carrie! I, I was just thinking because you so when you're you got is it sort of an algorithm? Is it sort of a, how explain? Oh yeah, so so we use statistical analysis pro, uh, uh, programs to um, analyze our data. Okay. And um, so when you, for instance, when you um, do a behavioral study, you might put someone in uh, in a room where they are sitting opposite of a computer yep. and the computer might have a task for them. And the task might be designed in such a way that it measures behavior in, in a way that we're interested in. So okay. you might, um, so a task that we sometimes use is called the cyberball task. And it's uh, designed to... Um, um, to kind of simulate rejection in the lab, okay. which is a nasty thing to happen. And yeah. uh, it's really hard to, um, uh, to, to to measure how people respond to, to, to rejection. Yeah. And then when you, when you do a study, you want to kind of uh, make sure that everyone experiences exactly, exactly the same. Repetition, yep. Yes. Um, um, paradigm and mm -hmm. so what we do is we have this computerized task so everyone experiences exactly the same the only thing that's different is the subject experiencing it so okay. then you can look at like how do they feel how do they um, uh, perceive the rejection to be yeah. and then um, 
just ask them by asking them questions about it. So either yeah. on the computer, you can have a list of questions or you can interview them later. Mm-hmm. And then everything is then um, stored into our data file. So yeah. we'll have a subject number for every individual. Uh, so it's all anonymous. And then we'll have their responses. So what they said, how they felt, uh, or you measure their reaction times or you measure their heart rate so you can have okay. lots of different variables that you can measure yeah because that's what i was going to ask because you study resilience right yeah yes okay which you can't do and that was to me my question because that's quite a tough thing to do because yes. it's so individualized well in yes a, in a sense but that's not why it's hard okay why because is it hard? that applies to everything in psychology but, so yeah, everything suppose, in psychology yeah. is very individual and it's very subjective and that's yeah. the whole difficulty so the easier subjects like physics yeah the the object of interest is stable it's yeah. always the same you, you have rules and they always apply mm-hmm. but that doesn't apply to the human subject so here our rules might depend they might uh, change from person to person yeah. so we try to use our scientific rigor in such a way that uh, we can measure those changes as well, but it's very difficult. So what you do, you kind of um, start with the construct that you're interested in. For instance, how do people respond to social rejection? And then you you measure how they respond to inclusion. So you you measure how how do they respond in general, and then you exclude them, and you measure how they respond to that. And then you subtract how they felt during exclusion or during inclusion from exclusion. So you get the change in response. So you get the how much worse do people feel when they're excluded Mm -hmm. when compared to when they're included. Included. So you can kind of use uh, statistics um, to to, um, analyze this. And then if you have done that over a lot and a lot of people... You can average it yeah. and you can look at um, uh, group differences. So you can say, well, uh, in my case, we, we look at people who have experienced adversity in early life. So we say, if you have experienced adversity in early life, are your uh, feelings different when you're being excluded? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is what okay. we found indeed. So you can you can look at group differences. Um, but you can do many, many things. Okay. That's kind of why we use statistical uh, programs. Yeah. And and I really like doing uh, those those analyses. When I'm thinking about the, the variables that people have, mm-hmm. you know, when I said about the individualized, I guess um, not the trauma. What what's the word? Adversity. Adversity. Yes. Yeah. How do you sort of measure that? Measure adversity in the sense that people have different feelings yes. to. Yes, absolutely. And that's very important. Yeah. And that is an aspect of um, what makes them resilient as well. So that's yeah. even more complicated. So what we do, so there are many ways of measuring adversity. You okay. can ask people what they've experienced. You can interview them. You can give them a questionnaire. Yeah. You can ask their family. You can go to the official um, site and, and, and look for official reports so um, you can go to child protection services. Uh, okay. So there are lots and lots, and that of course depends on the type of study, the type of consent that you have, yeah. ethics, because it's very important to get ethics for that. You yes. can't just go to child protection services and get data. That you have to have approval for that. Yeah. Um, so the easiest way and the most often used way is to ask people. 
Okay. But when you ask people, um, there's a problem. So if you interview people mm-hmm. and ask them about their youth, they're more reluctant to disclose adversity. Yeah, of course. So the, um, there are... Uh, pros and cons about that and you can also have people fill in a questionnaire and if you give them examples of the type of experience that you that you're um, interested in yeah they are more um, likely to, to affirm such experiences so there are there are scientific studies comparing interviews with questionnaires measuring adversity and that's what they find so the best way, actually, if you want to really be sure about something, is to do both. Okay. To, to interview people and to have them fill in a questionnaire. So a quantitative and qualitative sort of, is that? Well, it's both, it's, it's both <coughs> quantitative. Okay. Uh, but the, 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 you kind of, so the, the problem with just having questionnaire data where you give people examples is that maybe they're a bit, it's, it's a bit too... Um, they're a bit too likely to say yes. And uh, you, you kind of want to get an average. Yeah. Because you want to get to the truth, really. So the more information you have, the better. So it's the best way to do it is to ask their family and their friends. and their, But you yeah. can't do that. No. Um, anyway, so you have lots and lots of ways to measure it. And there are pros and cons. And the most often used way is to just give people a questionnaire. Okay. And so that's what we do. Yeah. But then you, you, you need to take into account how people are feeling at the day that you're asking them. Yeah. Because if people feel depressed and you ask them about how is your youth, they might very well say, well, it's been horrible. Okay. But the same applies to people who are feeling really, really well. They might Sunshine. have experienced something, something negative, but they might, because they're feeling really good, they might just... Um, feel that ah, actually it was fine or they might not even think about it for the that's that's that that's yeah. that's also fine but i think it's really important that resilience in itself isn't a thing isn't there a is thing. there is no resilience gene there is no resilience brain yeah it's 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 a process that we're trying to measure yeah and i guess resilience you can't really there isn't a sort of definition or an is oh there, yes, there are lots there of definitions. Is, oh, okay, right. Oh yes, there's there's that when you look at the child development literature, there's there's more than thirty years of research on resilience. So yeah. there there are lots of people who have done this. Okay. I'm not the first, definitely not. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at the neuroimaging literature, the, so the pr- brain uh, literature, there are also people looking at resilience. But the problem is that they have u- been using different definitions for what resilience really means. Okay. So what I try to do is to bridge the and, and, and to form a bridge and to apply the literature and the theories from the child development literature to the neuroimaging literature, and um, the, so there there but there um, even just within the child development literature there are lots of different definitions, and um, because of this, last year a group of researchers including myself came up with a kind of a, a way to quantify resilience, a resilience framework, if you will. Okay. And we said that resilience referred to the maintenance or quick recovery of mental health after significant adversity. But that's a difficult definition because what does mental health mean? Yeah. Um, so I like, I personally like to think about 
resilience as um, functioning that is better than expected, better than what you've experienced, so better than someone else with similar experiences. Yeah. Okay. And, but I think it's really, really important that to know that resilience um, is is it's fluctuant, it's yeah. dynamic, it changes. So you can be very resilient one day when you when you're feeling really well, but you can also be less resilient in another day. And there are factors that might help you be resilient. Yeah. Like if you just had a really nice chat with a friend, you might then be more resilient to a stressful interaction with someone else after that. Of course. But if you just had a, a, a pet that died, then you might be less resilient to that exactly the same, same situation later. So it's the environmental factors and your genetics and your biology yes. that together orchestrate how you respond to, to stress. Is there good stress, bad stress, healthy stress? Yeah, I, 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 I know where you're going. So there, there are... Of, individual differences in how people respond to stress okay but then uh, so that might depend on your genetics on your on your environment on the interaction between the, your genetics and your environment yeah. and the situation so um so there there are lots of factors that together facilitate uh, how you respond to stress in general when we average across people there have been studies that shown that uh, if you have a little stress, yeah. that is actually beneficial. So um, they, they call this an inverted um, uh, U-shape. So if right. you have uh, a little stress, that's actually helpful. But if you have too much stress, that's not helpful anymore. Okay. Um, or stress inoculation. But it's that, that, that's the idea of a little bit of stress uh, is, is, is maybe good because... Your stress system, so the, bi the biology that facilitates your stress response, that, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, that is adaptive. Yeah, so when you're in the woods, yeah. when you see a bear, yeah. it's very adaptive to quickly um, well, yeah. see the bear, perceive the oh, bear, yeah. know what the bear means, and then run away. Yeah. Um, so your amygdala which is a, a, a structure in your brain that facilitates such quick responses, uh, when, it, when it's really, really quickly active, that's, that's good in a situation of stress. Yeah. Um, so, but when this stress is continuous and persistent and when it's in your um, uh, daily life every single day, so when the bear is at home, mm -hmm. that's not good. So a little bit of stress is good, okay. but when that when but the stress does need to 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 um, go away really. Okay, so I know it's not a mental state or anything like that, but can you train yourself then? Is there a way of you know? I don't want to say put it to the, like going to the yeah, gym for physical side to deal yes, with it. Yes, absolutely. There are many ways of training yourself um, to 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 deal better with stress. Right. And that's um, a big part of what cognitive behavioral therapies oh, CBT, and psychological therapies yep. do, really, is yeah. to, to make people respond better to stress. Um, and there is emotion regulation training. So there's, there's, um, there are people, and this is a really important aspect. Like, how can we uh, lower people's stress responses? And that's a big part of what we do, really, is trying yeah. to find out how we can do that. Because that will be a massive, massive 
it will have a massive impact if we know the factors that lower stress responses. Yeah. And we know that in adolescence, those factors might be different uh, from the factors that lower your stress responses in, in childhood yeah. or in adulthood. Okay. So it's also very important to, to if, you, if you look at those factors that lower stress, it's also take into account, well, who do you want to lower the stress in? Yeah. Is it children, adolescents, adults? Um, are, is it a male? Is it a female? Is it uh, what is their um, biology? What have they experienced? Because mm -hmm. all those factors are in some way implicated. So okay. it's very difficult. That's why we don't know it yet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so my second one was okay. an ambition. Okay. So I'm very, very ambitious. Uh, so I kind of like to be challenged, and uh, which is why I wait to the last moment to do stuff, because then it's a challenge. Um, but also my example of doing the PE, just because it was a challenge to get in, and then I got in, and it was really yeah. good. Um, and I want to do well. I want to do... The things that I do, I really want to do well. So I'm, I'm, I want... Uh, in my career, I want to become a group leader, just because that's the like the highest point of the, the yeah. reward system, really. Uh, but I also am ambitious in my in in what I want my research to mean. So I really want to help lower mental health disorders in adolescents. Yep. So that's also an ambition. But then that's also, and that's my number five, so I'm giving that away. It's also a bit narcissistic, right? To think that your research could mean so much that you can You're actually curing. contribute. Yeah. Um, and it's also a bit narcissistic to think that I can become a group leader. So we'll find out whether or not that actually works out um, later. Uh, but then, okay, so then I had curiosity. Okay. Because I'm curious, I just want to know how stuff works, yeah. and I take pleasure in finding things out. Um, On that point, day to day, what does it? What does research look like in yeah. your lab? What are people doing in your lab? Then? My lab is fabulous. Can I? Okay. Can I, can Please. I say that? Yeah, of course. I have the most amazing students and postdocs who are working with me. I'm very, very lucky, and that's my number four, which is great. Um, so, um, I have a group of seven individuals now. It's a huge group. And so is they that PhD, are, postdoc? Um, yeah. So PhD, postdocs and some students, visiting yeah. students. I have a visiting researcher from Mexico and they're all from all over the world. Uh -huh. Um, and they're brilliant, uh, women and men who are just really um, good at what they do and they're curious and they're they're fun to work with and and together we we sit down and we think about what what do we want to know what do we want to solve and um, so there are some some projects that we're running at the moment um, one is on resilience so we're trying to find out what are the factors within yourself so within your biology that facilitate better responses to stress Okay. Um, so that is a big project that we're running, the RAISE study, we call that. Yeah. And then uh, the other project that I'm working on uh, is called the HOPES project, which is the, um, uh, it's MQ funded. 
um, and it's a big international collaboration with other researchers, um, with researcher Liana Smile from Melbourne and okay. Hilary Bloomberg from Yale, and we're uh, investigating adolescent suicide, suicidal thoughts, suicidal behaviors, right. And what we're interested in is to see if we can identify factors within the biology mm -hmm. that put adolescents at risk for such thoughts and behaviors. Okay. And then also um, we're trying to in investigate how those factors interact with the environment, yeah. so with your friends and, and peer support and bullying. Okay. How does that interact with your brain yeah. in predicting um, suicidal thoughts and behaviors in, yeah. in youth? So that's a, a another project that we're running at the moment. And, and how's that one working? Because those sound like when you were talking earlier about asking questions about with your peers, your parents and things like that. It sounds quite invasive in a sense. Oh, it's very invasive. Oh, how, yeah. how did you get the ethics and how does that work? How, how is that? <laughs> is it using phones or anything? Because some of those factors sound like. Which factors are you talking about? Well, when you're saying bullying and things like that, that sounds yes. very real time. Yes. Yeah. So, so what we should do, but we're not doing that, but we should have real time measurements, right? Okay. So, so that you get, but the problem with that is if you ask someone on their phone, if you ask them, are you being bullied right now? Okay. What does that do to their mental health? Yeah. Because what happens if they are? Yeah. What happens if you keep reminding them because you want to assess this every single day? Yeah. That's a problem. And um, we wouldn't get ethics for that, of no. course. Okay. Uh, and the same, so there are, there are multiple factors that you have to take into account. So what we kind of come up with is that we ask people to come to the lab and we give them a whole bunch of questionnaires. So in addition to the adversity that we're assessing, we'll also be assessing their mental health, but we're also assessing their social environment. So how is their friendships, the, the quality of their friendships? Are they happy with their friends? Can they rely on their friends? Same for family. How is the interactions? Do they feel supported in their family? And we ask them lots and lots of different things. And we also ask about suicidal thoughts, suicidal behaviors in the past. So we ask about lots and lots of things in a controlled environment. Yeah. So that if someone gets upset, we have the necessary um, help in place right there. Right there and then. Okay. Right there and right then. And um, we also give them information um, to... Um, to do when they feel when they're feeling low yeah. after the interview yeah so we're actually providing a bit of um, a network for these individuals of course. Uh, but it's a very important aspect of my everything i do it's very hard um, because because it's so invasive yeah it takes a lot longer to get people to to get ethics yeah and to get people to come to the lab because that of that my question is very how difficult. difficult is it to get people because you're already look, you're almost looking for people who realise they've got yes. a problem, and are happy to talk. I, do you yeah. know what I mean? They're, they're yeah. looking for a, a, a sort of a way out, a solution in a sense. I don't know. That's what I'm well, guessing. Yeah. So for the type of research that I do on adversity yeah. and on suicide, um, people are reluctant to to come to the lab. Um, and that, so that is a difficulty that we have, which what we're, and, and, and the, it's not just a difficulty of doing the research, but also in analyzing it. Because if you only get 
let's say, 20 people to come to do your research study, then what does what do your findings really mean yeah. to the real world? So what we're trying to do um, in the suicide project, for instance, is we're 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 um, putting we're setting up this consortium, and we're pooling all our data. Okay. So that we each might have a little bit of data, but we're analyzing a big heap of data. Yeah. So our findings will be more meaningful, and we'll we'll have we call that we'll have more power to detect effects that are actually there. Okay. Um, but it's it's a it's a it's a challenge and it, it makes my life a bit slower yeah. <laughs> my, my research a bit slower than other people's research maybe that's it from us at the we are the university podcast if you like what you're hearing don't forget to head on over to the itunes store or spotify or stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a five-star rating i'm nick safel and see you next week <laughs>